0: I first went to a mine for the very first time, October or September this year. It is pitch black in there, like the (laughs) darkest dark you've ever seen in your life, because there's no slit of light coming from anywhere. So a lot of the times all you get to see is based on your headlight, right?
1: Welcome to MicroPulse Canada. MicroPulse Canada is a podcast focused on in depth interviews with community based change makers. Today, I have the pleasure of releasing an interview with Suzanne Belima. Suzanne holds a bachelor's degree in biomedical mechanical engineering and a master's degree in strategic design and innovation. She strongly believes in giving back to the community, and to pursue this purpose, she officially launched an educational nonprofit called The Black. Spinal Initiative. The Black Spinal Initiative introduces Black youth to a variety of career paths through engineering, science, technology, entrepreneurship, arts and math. The programs are founded on the belief that developing an analytical mind but also a creative one will prepare Black youth to a rapidly changing environment. I invited Suzanne to Micropulse to learn about her diverse upbringing, motivations, and her passion for tea and innovation. So, thank you very much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. Hi, Suzanne. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me on Micropulse Canada. I'm super excited to chat with you today. Um, How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Awesome. <laughs> uh, d- doing good. It's a, it's a lovely Sunday. So so could you tell me a bit about yourself?
0: Sure. So my name is Suzanne. I am originally from Burkina Faso um, and grew up around several countries in Africa, um, mostly central and southern Um I would say I'm fairly the globe trotter if you had to like put a hashtag on my name. (laughs) I'm just super passionate about discovering culture. So moved to Toronto, um, to Ottawa for school, um, studied biomedical engineering. Um, Always been surrounded, I would say, by a diverse group of people, whether it's where they're from, their upbringing. Um, And then I now work in Toronto, uh, in a mining company in a space I'm super excited and also passionate about, which is innovation. Um, So thinking about different ways we can use technology to improve lives. In specific, my focus at work is safety. So I find it very rewarding to know that we're not just using technology for fun, but we're actually helping people be in safer conditions. So for me, if I could speak about Myself is I'm super interested in doing things that are meaningful uh, and have a positive impact. I hope it's positive, but generally positive impact in people's lives.
1: Amazing. I would love to ask you more questions about um, your upbringing, seeing as it's brought you to technology and um, all the interesting things that are happening within that space in terms of safety, but also uh, inspiring young kids to get into uh, uh, uh science and technology and arts as well. so could you tell me a bit about um growing up uh, in Burkina Faso and also traveling and now you describe yourself as a third culture kid um could you t- talk a bit about that?
0: Sure thing. um so I actually was born in Burkina Faso but i I left when I was two. okay uh, my parents did do a conscious. And I think now looking back, big effort to make sure we were still tied to the roots. So going back every summer, spending time, you know, in the countryside with the grandparents and the cousins. Um, And I think in terms of my upbringing, right, like I'm fortunate to be here today, but I can speak to a lot of people I know in my family, even who don't necessarily have the same opportunities as me. Um, And growing up, my dad also worked in development. So a lot of the countries I grew up in, as much as, you know, it sounds fancy to be like, I grew up in like X countries, it was all developing countries. It was all countries at war, uh, specifically remember in Angola, uh, we were there during the war and literally it was, you know, be ready to drop everything at any given point if things blow up and grab your emergency bag and go. So I find you, your your mindset gets shaped in what is it that matters in life? Because you're not going to grab your toys in that emergency bag, (laughs) you're going to grab clothes. Um, And I find that that experience of like being in places where um, I could see the difficulties of that environment. And even though I was fortunate, I think my parents did a really good job instilling in all of us, my siblings and I, the fact that if you have you have to give and you have to help. Um, And I just think that's just inherently become part of who I am today. It's, you know, you're always in a position to be able to help. Um, You know, it could be big, small. And I think some people sometimes think I need to be, you know, a millionaire to be able to give back. And it's like, no, someone could benefit from $10 today and I can afford that. So why am I not doing that? Why am I waiting for, you know, the big breakthrough when you can do little things here and there to, to help people around you um i don't know if i answered your question but i think when i think of my upbringing it's probably over the years the the thing i've, I've reflected on the most it's you know this is what's been given to me as a gift and as a way to see the world and help people around me so definitely a big big important chunk of my upbringing
1: I hear you. I hear you. That sounds like um, like a really beautiful lens to be able to to see the world through. Um, having those experiences in different countries, but also looking at like the development side of it is really interesting. But I'm wondering, like, from you as I guess these were like your formative years as well. And I think as young kids in your formative years, yes, you're thinking about those broader things in terms of giving back. But I think also, um, did you ever experience any issues in terms of um uh, Ma- making and uh, maintaining connections and how did you, if if that was an issue at all how did you um overcome and grapple with that mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> i don't know like i feel like so every four years we would move so it's almost become part of you know you're not settling in for long um so I think it's become, and I probably picked it up too young to be able to recognize how I made it work, but you just knew you're going to be in a new school. You're going to be in a new country. You won't know anyone. Um, and you'll have to find a way to make friends and adapt and learn about the things that matter in different countries. So I think from a young age, I was able to pick that up subconsciously, probably, Um but it's now made it easier for me as a grown-up now to, you know, if you uproot me and put me somewhere else, like, I'll figure it out. And I don't know how exactly. Um, but maybe also to add, it's it's really helped me find a way to keep in touch with people, right? Because for me, it's never been, okay, I'm here for four years, connect with people for four years, and then I never talk to them again. Um, one thing that friends do have told me, which I never really realized, is you have a really strong way of staying connected to people. So even people I haven't seen in years, I'll still be connected to them. Um, (laughs) This is really strange, but when I was in, I was probably like eight or nine and I had a pen pal through school. So the pen pal days, you know, they picked a different school and you guys became pen pals. So we started off with letters in school, but we got along really well. So even outside of school, like when the program ended, we still kept sending each other letters. And then the MSN days happened. So we switched over (laughs) to MSN. And then the Facebook days happened. We switched over to Facebook. And today we're still in touch. So to think about little things like that, where it's like, whoa, why am I in touch with this random pen pal? And there are a few people in my network like that where I'm fairly close to them, but I've actually never physically met them <laughs> because the connection was just, you know, you don't have to be in the same geographical area. You don't have to have the same upbringing or background. You, Like if you try hard enough, you'll find a way to connect with people. Um,
1: 100%. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. I, I would, I would say for me, it's 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 very similar. Like I, I, I grew up in a different country and uh, moved to Canada, but I have friends ar- around the globe, and it's mostly just staying in touch in terms of like um, using technology, uh, for all its you know pros and uh, cons. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I completely uh, get that point as well. Um, so could you talk about? Um, Um, any um, inspirations, like what inspires you? Do you have uh, mentors, um, philosophy? Is there there something, tell me a bit about what inspires you. A lot of
0: things inspire me. I think people, maybe to to make it simple, people that, um, and I don't know how to categorize them, but there are people that have a certain aura. And I'm Mm -hmm. thinking here, for instance, Michelle Obama, Oprah, where you just listen to them and you just feel like, wow, could you be any purer? <laughs> like, I want to be like you when I grow up. So those are obviously the figures I look up to, uh, which to me embody wisdom. Um, Nelson Mandela is another one. It's, you know, no matter if you extrapolate all this experience he's had, like, I would not react this way. So it's almost as if I look up to things that I wish I had, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um I think if I was Nelson Mandela, I'd be very bitter (laughs) after 27 years of jail. Um, But I think the other things that inspire me are people who just thrive to make things better Um, for themselves. You know, everyone has a particular situation they're in, but also for others. Um, I do have mentors, uh, different kinds of mentors. So I have mentors in my professional circle, um, Mm -hmm. but also mentors in my friend circle, and then mentors more on a, you know, life, I guess, perspective, philosophy, you know, how to be a better human aspect, I guess, as opposed to, you know, focusing on my career growth or focusing on developing a certain skill set or that sort of thing.
1: Nice, nice. Yeah. Um- that's that's really interesting that um you you know you draw inspiration from so many different places and then you just kind of put it all together in one um amazing package I think thinking about um what you're talking about Nelson Mandela yeah it's it's one of those things that even myself um sometimes I'm like yeah you know he's an amazing like forgiving guy and then mm-hmm. and then you just try to strive to, to, towards that and you're just like this is
0: this, <laughs> this is, is
1: impossible. <laughs> impossible right um and so yeah that depth of spirit is um is is very impressive um yeah amazing um how do, how do you take care of yourself how do you stay grounded and positive I know it's probably very challenging, especially given the pandemic and everything.
0: (laughs) How do I say grounded and positive? Uh, Obviously, it's not 100% all the time, but I would say definitely connections through people that I'm close to. Um, Mm -hmm. So having that support network definitely keeps me grounded. Um, It's very broad and diverse in the sense that that support group has people who understand, people who are empathetic but also people who challenge me and people who won't take my nonsense, you know, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> be <laughs> like, no,
1: <What's> your nonsense? <laughs> this is
0: not okay. It's like, oh man, I didn't need to hear that, but I kind of do. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those are the things that keep me grounded. Um, I would say my faith also keeps me grounded. Um, In ways I can't necessarily explain, I guess, (laughs) that I'm trying to like put it in words, but it's definitely a very important part of my life and, you know, the outlook I have and the perspective I have on things. Um, I do a lot of creative endeavors in general, like I'm not good at painting or drawing or anything like that, but I find that that outlet of self-expression in whatever way works for you. Uh, mm-hmm. Even if it's a doodle that looks bad, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's still something that kind of, I don't know, just helps me stay grounded and just be me and feel like there's no constraint and no repression of what you want to express. Mm-hmm. Um, since pandemic, I wouldn't say working out so much, but mm-hmm. I think spending time outdoors, especially in summer and just being outside and like exercising in general, like any sort of like physical, you know, by cycling, walking, hiking, it doesn't have to be intense, but just like physical, um, I think also really helps me.
1: Amazing. Yeah, I remember you posted one time on your Instagram, you you were hosting some sort of like event, uh, a tea tea tasting oh, tea or
0: something. Tasting, yes. What was
1: that? What was that about? <laughs> well, that's
0: actually one that I've, I didn't add, but I find for me, tea is almost like a meditation activity. Mm. I know it sounds weird, but if, so I'm a tea sommelier in training, which means you study the, the end to end art of tea, right? The way you plant it, the way you harvest it, but also how you make sure you have specific profiles, right? Like when you go buy a Coca-Cola bottle, there's a specific formula, but Mm -hmm. try and imagine that for companies that make tea, for Mm -hmm. a plant that could just change from like year to year, depending on the rain you get, the sun you get. So it's a bit trickier, but um, a big part of that is the tasting aspect, right? So putting a vocabulary to taste is Mm -hmm. actually ridiculously uh, difficult because we're really trained to do things visually, right? Um, So I find that So the tea tasting event, maybe to answer your question, uh, was a way to introduce people to the different things that you can learn if you're a tea sommelier, but also just have them try different teas. Because I do find a lot of people will default to the teas they know, like I drink black tea with milk and that's it. I drink green tea. And I've heard a lot of people tell me green tea is so bitter. I'm like, no, you're just making it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So, when you start to understand certain things underlying, you know, how to prepare tea, which again comes from the training, Mm -hmm. then you enjoy tea in a very different way from 100 degree boiled for every tea, because that's not the way to do it. And so, that was the tea tasting session just to bring people together, have a conversation. There was an underlying element of I've hosted a few events. So I'm not sure which one you're referring to, but the very first one I I hosted had an underlying um, theme of hygge, which is oh. H-Y-G-G-E. It's Danish. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really have like a proper explanation on the art of enjoying the moment and just coziness, that kind of thing. So the whole idea was to bring people together, bring people with diverse backgrounds, experiences, um, and just engage in conversation, right? Mm Because a a lot of the times we stay in our circles and we don't really, within our cities, you know, look out to see what else is there? Who else has a different experience? Mm -hmm. Um, So that was a bit of the idea too, is like how do you create a moment of coziness among strangers? Because everyone basically was a stranger to the other. And enjoy tea, because for me, tea is, if you look at different cultures, tea is typically for hospitality. So um, yeah, how do you create a moment around that and create a hospitable space for anyone that joins in? It It was pretty nice.
1: Yeah, that sounds so amazing. Please share some photos. I'd love to, you know, add those to this uh, uh, when I share the podcast. Um, Yeah, like I like a few of the things you said, like um, that there's a meditation aspect um, of, you know, tea tasting, um, bringing people together to share this moment, because like, you know, everyone could have different upbringings, like you said, different education, different age ranges, whatever the variable is. But um, it's just this one thing that everyone could have in common and they kind of you have that moment where you sip the tea and then you know it settles and then you swallow and it's just just like just that slowness of it and then like you said all of the the educational component around it is so interesting that you know no two tea leaves could probably be the same right like
0: exactly yeah
1: yeah very very cool um yeah we should do a whole podcast on that (laughs) Um, yeah, so, so thank you so much about that. I'd love to learn a bit more about um, your um, initiative, the Black spinel Initiative. Did I pronounce mm-hmm. that
0: right? Yeah. Perfect. Right. Um, Black spinel Initiative. Wow. I'm going to try and keep this one short because I could go off tangents, but no, essentially, tangents, um, <laughs> <laughs> essentially it's, it's, it's come from a lot of reflection and being in different positions where I try to have or see diversity more represented. Um, So I mentioned at the beginning, in my intro, I studied biomedical engineering uh, in Ottawa, and maybe that's specific, but I was, we were two Black students that graduated, right? I had one Black prof. And, you know, it's things that you just don't really think about too much. But I think when I entered the corporate space is when that diversity lens just became more prevalent to me. It's Mm -hmm there are just experiences and things you see and you're like, wow, when I'm trying to explain it, it just doesn't come out the way I feel. Um, And then it's mislabeled or misunderstood. And then, so it was kind of trying to figure that out. Um, So I worked for a consultancy firm uh, where I led the black professional network. Mm -hmm. And there was kind of like the big aha of discovering that world of It's almost as if we had the black network and then the firm and the energy and the dynamics was just so different when I interacted with one group versus the other, but also all the learnings from leaders that were black. And I'm going to air quote safe space it, right? Because there are just things you can talk about freely that in the corporate space, you're like, ah, what can I say? What should I think about before I say how can I find that there's just so many layers of filter that at some point you just kind of either don't say anything or you say it in a way that's just so polite Mm -hmm. and proper that it just lost the whole essence of what you're trying to convey. Um, And that taught me a lot in terms of, you know, diversity. It's different now I find with post George Floyd and post COVID and it's been a bit of a revolution, but before trying to explain some of the challenges it felt either, okay, you guys can figure it out by yourselves um, without support, which kind of doesn't make sense, Um, or it's just something we don't understand. So we're just gonna leave you have that safe space and we're just not gonna get involved. So there was always a layer of something was missing. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, I guess some of the things I'm really passionate about is how do we increase diversity in spaces around us in general? Mm -hmm. Uh, But coming from STEM, being super, I don't know if passion is the right term, but I really love what I do in STEM. Mm -hmm. Um, I find that there's a big maybe misunderstanding of what STEM is, right? When you speak to kids, I didn't necessarily love math, right? (laughs) Um, But when I speak to kids, it's either, you know, when you try and see those events that speak about role models in STEM it's oftentimes people that were so incredibly passionate. I loved math from age four and it's like, (laughs) "Uh, I don't know if that was me. And I know that wasn't me, right? Um, So how do we find a way to make STEM just more enticing? And I'm not trying to get everyone to be in STEM, but I think there's just such a missed opportunity to have diversity in that space. Because when I think of STEM or even innovation, the space I'm in now, it's creating the future, literally. Um, right? Because science is discover what's not there yet, right? But you discover it because you're asking yourself certain questions. Now, if you don't have diversity in the group asking, what should we look for? Then it's already kind of skewed, right? And you're going down a certain path. So for me, I've always been super interested in how do we make young kids more interested without putting that layer of you got to study math and you got to study things that maybe are too abstract for them to feel interested um and so the black spindle initiative is trying to do that hopefully Uh, but what we do is we bring professionals from a variety of STEM fields and the idea there is we also don't know how vast that space is the number Mm -hmm. of times people have said oh you're an engineer you can fix my lights I'm like no (laughs) first of all I am not an electrical engineer so understanding there's different kinds is like one layer right and then the things we study and the interpretation of what people think we do is just so different that i think it's important for kids to to just be informed and aware of what it is you do in those different potential career paths in stem um and so the professional will come they will try and abstract really to the core foundation of what it is that i do in my job to Mm -hmm. the kids, and then try and include some elements of critical thinking, analysis, uh, and creativity is also super important within the programs. Um, So the three things here are hopefully they get exposed to wide career options. You know, as you grow up, you'll at least Feel like you've seen stuff and you're not just randomly picking a career path. The mm-hmm. second one is you're learning from a Black professional. And again, the aspect of role models, I think, is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third one is, I forgot now, but <laughs> let's stick to two. Okay. I know there's like three key pillars that we're aiming for, but those two are definitely uh, very important.
1: Very, very, very cool and interesting. I mean, I we hear all the time that uh, children, uh, young kids, do not have exposure to uh, role models, and a lot of times they don't know what to look for in terms of like what's available. So that mm. sounds like an amazing um, uh, initiative. When did you guys get started? Uh, what's the age range of the students you're, you um, you 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 target? And in general, how how do you approach? Uh, I, I don't know if you're approaching schools or you're. Um, You've built a platform and you invite uh, parents to enroll their kids. Like, what's the the structure?
0: Interesting question. So, in terms of starting the program, it really started in terms of experimentation because we're like, okay, we want to do this, but like, what is it that we want to do? So, we actually pivoted because we started off with teenagers. um, And for reasons, I guess I won't go into detail, but particular reasons, we decided to pivot and try with kids, which is a lot more successful. The age range is six to 10 um, and that's post just having conversations with parents and trying to find a range that works because originally we said like six to 12 and parents would say, ah, that's a big range, like a (laughs) six-year-old and a 12-year-old in the same class. That's not, it's really not the same mental space. So for now it's six to 10, but really we're hoping to expand so we can cover end to end, you know, can you start the program at age six? Mm -hmm. And all the way until you decide what you want to study in university, you know, do the program, but perhaps in a different structure and level of maturity. Um, Right now, we are only really doing word of mouth, Um, Mm -hmm. so it's a lot of just reaching out directly to parents, reaching out to groups that might have parents. Uh, But we are hoping to eventually work with schools and be able to maybe offer it to different classes or programs, extracurricular programs, that sort of thing. Uh, But I would definitely say this is a next iteration because we are fully based on volunteers. That can also be a bit of a limitation in terms of, you know being able to run the program, but also thinking ahead of what needs to be done. Um, And because we're still in early stages, there's just so much to learn as we run the initial programs that we're just going to try and focus right now on understanding what it is we want, how we want to structure the program. And then at least when we reach out to external parties, it's not just schools, we're also thinking corporate entities, Mm -hmm. Um, then we'll have a better idea of, okay, well, we know this works, now we just need to scale it up.
1: Very cool. Very cool. Sounds exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing it develop. Um, How are you recruiting uh, mentors? Where are you sourcing them from?
0: So a lot of word of mouth, again, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which seems to work really well within the Black community. Uh, But it's been word of mouth. So friends and family and then their extended friends and family. Essentially, Mm -hmm. Uh, we've also on our website people that come across our website and are interested in helping out can sign up as well. Um, We also haven't started yet, but hoping to tap into networks, like I mentioned, I I worked or I volunteered slash led the Black Professional Network uh, in one organization. So could we also reach out to those corporate entities and see if they can volunteer uh, some members to help out? um how else do we find people I think that's been how it, we've mostly done it so far
1: very cool very cool yeah looking forward to sharing this with them um, I'm also on a um, uh, diverse and inclusion council in my organization so looking forward oh, nice. to this as well um mm-hmm. could you uh, talk a bit about um I guess you know what's the long-term vision I, I, uh, just uh, generally I know you spoke a little bit about it but just what's the long-term vision and how can you be supported by anyone who's listening?
0: Sure. So long-term vision is to be in all global and which is interesting. It kind of happened by accident. We are really targeting Canada for this phase (laughs) and just learning, but we had people sign up from different African countries. Um, And then I got feedback from some parents saying, Hey, this is great, especially in the Francophone world, because we don't have a lot of these kinds of programs. So Mm -hmm. I would say the vision would be to have a platform where We can offer that across the world um, in I'm thinking English and French, but I'm thinking honestly, probably the most common languages that would be beneficial to youth Um, to be integrated into school programs, I think would be super important. Mm -hmm. Um, And at some point, a platform where so right now we're doing a lot of the hands-on, you know, quality check partnership development, but it'd be amazing if people reached out to us and said, Hey, we're trying to sponsor a program or, Hey, we'd like to send people to help you develop this program. Uh, I would say ultimately an ad tech platform is where we're okay. hoping to take it um, so that it's more sustainable and um, you know, st- It can stand by itself without us always having to be the middleman. Um, Field trips is another one we're also looking to incorporate, hopefully in the near future, where, um, again, it's nice that the professional comes and speaks to their experience. But I remember as a kid going to some office Mm -hmm. and just seeing the space and seeing people do different activities. So I think that would also be an interesting part to add ultimately so that every program would also have a field trip where the kids could see, you know, what that job could look like or that work environment could look like. Um, And um, I guess, yeah, the vision would also be if we could get funded to have, you know, a lot of it right now is volunteer based. So again, everyone has a full-time job and is offering some time for this, but if we could hire people to, you know, help with marketing, um help with a lot of the administrative things that would really really help us a lot
1: amazing amazing well I mean it sounds amazing I think even when I think back in like high school whatever just going to those field trips and uh yeah, going and seeing how things were made. I think we went to like a cement plant or something. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and also like a um, a drink manufacturing uh, plant. So it would be interesting to have like a centralized platform that facilitates those partnerships, but also maybe even just has a centralized location where if it's video content, audio content, mm-hmm. um pieces and all of that. So that sounds exciting and um um and I'm hoping I'm looking forward to watching you uh, develop it and also ha- uh, people um participating. Yeah, uh, so thank you so much. L- l- last question, maybe we could talk a bit about um I know you're super excited about uh, your current role um developing safety within the mining space. That that sounds so cool. Could you talk a bit about that? Sure.
0: So I'm new to the mining industry, which is interesting um it has advantages because there are a lot of things I noticed that just don't make sense in terms of you know people have just evolved linearly to a certain point and I'm like wait a second like why aren't we trying this they're like oh we never thought about it Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but it's also very very complex in terms of I mean it's a dangerous operation when you the more you learn about it the more you realize and so My role, so I specifically work for underground operations, which is different from surface mining. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's when underground is when you literally dig a a hole. I'm going to use layman's term here, but a hole and you go deep, 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 deep into the earth. And you're literally just cutting the rock around it and then extracting it to Mm -hmm. extract whatever you're looking for, typically metal. Um, And so picture, I first went to a mine for the very first time. October or September this year it is pitch black in there like the <laughs> darkest dark you've ever seen in your life because there's no slit of light coming from anywhere so a lot of the times all you get to see is based on your headlight right mm-hmm. um and just a lot of the other safety stuff like you have huge trucks when I mean huge are like bigger than trucks you see on the road huge right so mm-hmm. imagine that thing hits you um you have to consider things like the way you extract the, um, I'm using rock. It's not the proper term, but just so minerals. You but you have to literally explode it, mm-hmm. let it air out, and then go back to then pick up those, you know, blasted rocks. So you have explosives around you, which by the way, if you have certain radio frequencies can be an issue. But you also have to think about, well, if there's an accident, I need to locate people. Mm -hmm. Um, So just so many little dangerous things that you need to be mindful of. And you still have people working there full time, you know, underground. Um, And so my specific role is we obviously know what we're doing when it comes to mining as a company. uh, But could we learn from other industries and just generally technologies that are out there that could transfer over to mining. Uh, because a lot of the times people will think of, okay, companies in mining and that's it. But I'll give you an example. Fatigue is one of the big issues we have, which is basically, imagine you didn't sleep well, right? Mm-hmm. In you and you a nice job, you go to an office, you're just a little bit sleepy, you drink some coffee. It's a typo on an email. Mm-hmm. That typo on an email for someone driving one of those big trucks could mean you ran over someone you fell asleep on the wheel, like, you know, the impact is huge. Mm -hmm. And if you think about wearable devices, this is completely not in the lens of mining, but it's a solution that could actually benefit in that space with the proper use case. So my job is really to stay connected to the innovation ecosystem across Mm -hmm. industries, which is what I find super interesting. Even though I'm in mining, I still get to speak to people from you know, healthcare, uh, energy, you name it. Mm-hmm. And then trying to basically think about, can we laterally use the solution in what we do in our operations? Um, and then, so that's the first layer, which is, I would guess, call it ideation. Um, very interesting to speak to different startups too, and just kind of learn about how they see their technology and the different use cases they can come up with once you explain, hey, these are the things we do. Mm -hmm. Um, And then typically, if we find something that looks interesting, (coughs) sorry, it's, it's moving it to the project proof of concept level. So, Again, it's great that you say you can do these things, but let's try within our environment, within our constraints, with our specific use cases and requirements to see how that would work. I love that phase because it's not the typical vendor relationship where you say, hey, Microsoft, I'm just going to buy a thing and make it work for me. Mm-hmm. But it's a lot of actually working and co-creating with the client to say, okay, you do, you have this, but we would ideally need it to look like this, and then they would kind of like rejig a little, little bit. So it's pretty, pretty interesting. And then, if it is successful, because not everything is, then we would then look at how we deploy it across the board to maximize the the impact. Um, so for me, as someone that doesn't come from the mining space, it's huge in terms of learning around the different operations we have. Um, but also learning just being on top of the technologies that are out there and trending and coming. And again, you don't want to integrate something that's going to be obsolete next year in the next two years. So keeping track of, okay, how are technologies trending across the board? So we can incorporate things that make sense within our, our company.
1: Very, very cool. Um, I'm just curious. uh, So from, from the first phase to the last phase, um, if, if a, a uh, technology successful how long does it usually take your organization to onboard it I, i'm guessing like there are like very stringent regulatory constraints as well as you know the organization um yeah especially in mining so i'm just curious like wh- how that process looks like um, internally
0: i actually don't have an answer for you yet <laughs> <laughs> because since i've joined i've not been in a full end-to-end process of integrating it but what i can't see is really slow. To your point, regulations are huge. You also need to find people, right? So one of the challenges also in innovation as a whole, uh, corporate innovation across the board is my job is to do that. So I have full-time, you know, this is what I do, but then I don't understand the operations that well. So I need to work with someone in operations. The issue is they have day-to-day issues in production that they need to deal with. So also finding that Person that's then available to make that happen is typically I would say the biggest hurdle and constraint. Um, And then changing mindsets, right? Because a lot of the technologies we also bring in come from startups or less developed, less mature, less known organizations. And so through the whole, you know, sourcing process or the whole um, technology, you know, everyone has their technology guidelines, whatever, they don't always map, <laughs> so then there's also conversations to be had there every time we bring in something that's new and different. So I don't have an answer, but I can guess it is probably at least a year.
1: Very, very cool, and I think, yeah, now just I'm just making back like the linkages from like the earlier part of the conversation where you're talking about even in your upbringing. You, know, you kind of just uh, move from place to place and you had to learn uh, cultures very quickly. You had to learn about um, and connect with people really quickly. And then you kind of utilizing that in your current environment um, to transplant new technologies into new environments where there's so many different constraints, right? So, interesting. so interesting. So cool. <laughs>
0: That's a cool connection because I never thought of it that way. But yeah, I like it.
1: <laughs> I, th- I think it takes a very, very interesting mindset to be able to to transplant ideas into especially very regulated, um, industries. Like I can speak to, um, I, d- I don't work in innovation, but I work in a very regulated industry. So even just those conversations around innovation, like it really does take, um, someone who's really into the future, but who's very patient at the same time. <laughs> um, so that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. It's sometimes I, I, I tell others in my field cause we will all be frustrated about similar things. And it's like, Are we masochists? Like, why do we do this to ourselves? (laughs) Because some days it is really painful um, because to us it's really clear. But to your point, when you look at it from the perspective of someone who comes from the regulated side, there are reasons why all this came up, why all this was built a certain way. Unfortunately, we don't always know the full journey in history, right? So if you're in this role and you know you got to do A, B, C, D, E just because it's going to make things safe then it becomes difficult for you to question, you know, well, this was a hundred years ago. Does it still make sense today? Um, and I find that it's exciting to also ask those questions, right? Because the number of conversations I've been part of where people are like, no, it's, it's this way. And I'm like, "But why is it this way? Yeah, because of the guideline. But can you explain to me why? And you always hit a point where people don't have an answer. And that's when, to me, it's almost the magical moment of they realize, oh, maybe we could do it differently. Um, So that art of being able to ask questions without sounding naggy or sounding like I'm questioning your ability and your expertise is really, 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 I would say the core challenge in my role because that's that's what you need you need them to realize oftentimes by themselves through questions or through just like mm, why do we do it this certain way because if you ask you know it can just trigger people in different ways
1: 100 <laughs> yeah i was actually watching a youtube video um i don't know if you read the book when you're younger it's called the, the allegory of the cave um must be Plato or someone as a philosopher. I'll send you the video, but it's it's really interesting um, in the sense that it's really difficult to, to help people see something very dif- differently. And it's really, it's a great analogy for you too because you're actually working in mining and it's an allegory of people stuck in a cave <laughs> and you're trying to tell them what the sun looks like, um, but like you're threatening their very existence or their very way of knowing. Um, and so I think it's a good example, but it also needs to be translated into today's languages. Because I wouldn't like to be told that I'm in a cave. But, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's great work. Um, thank you so much for um, uh, sharing um, everything you're doing. Looking forward to hearing more about uh, the the spin on it- initiative and um, and also learning more about uh, the work you're doing in mining. So thank you for your time.
0: Awesome. Thank you so. much.